the real Jesus, the healthy church. I believe.com faith 10 sure signs you're in a healthy church. Michelle Lazarek, I believe contributor. No church is perfect. It's full of imperfect people who come together for a common goal to love Jesus and to tell about him to those who don't know him. After Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples formed a church, explained in the book of Acts, an account of this early church in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, is perhaps the best example of what of what a healthy church should look like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let me read to you an NIV New International version of the Bible's commentary on the passage I just read to you. A healthy Christian community attracts people to Christ. The Jerusalem church's zeal for worship and brotherly love was contagious. A healthy, loving church will grow in numbers. What are you doing to make your church the kind of place that will attract others to Christ? As my, as one of the pastors that I have heard preach says, anything that's healthy should be growing. And as a healthy believer, you will attract people who are not Christian to you. So what does this mean for the church today? Here are 10 characteristics of a healthy church. One, A healthy church produces new leaders. Jesus spent a lot of his time with the 12 disciples and he spent extra time with three particular people, Peter, James, and John, whom he trained closely to carry on his legacy. Churches that don't pour into others to make them leaders are missing the mark. Ministries soon become about the leader rather than the fulfilling the purpose of why they exist. Let me read that again. Ministries soon become about the leader rather than the fulfilling the purpose of why they exist. Good leaders identify and train others with potential to eventually take over the ministry. Although not explicitly stated, I imagine the disciples took turns teaching and leading those in their fellowship. As the early church grew, the original leaders identified more leaders in the congregation to better serve the growing body. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. No one person assumed every responsibility, and because Jesus had worked with them often and closely, they all got a first-hand glimpse of what it meant to go out into the world, meeting the needs of those around them. Two, a healthy church helps members crave meat, not milk. First Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-3. through 3. 
But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still still of the flesh. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 again. The responsibility to grow church members rests is both in leadership and in the members themselves. So often I come away from events and sermons that give no specific application to the audience using cliche verses that are either taken out of context or don't reveal new truths to the more mature believer. Teaching is not the only way we grow, but it is a vital tool for regular attenders. As for the members' responsibility to grow, when Paul mentions that the people of his church were still drinking spiritual milk, I don't doubt he urged his church to chew on what he was saying and apply it to their lives, rather than rely on him for a constant feeding. Church members are responsible for their own growth too. We must apply the word, not just hear it. Three, a healthy church devotes itself to prayer. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Acts chapter 12, verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. If the saying, the family that prays together stays together is true, the same goes for a congregation. The congregation that prays together stays together. Not every church has a regular prayer meeting to pray together, but, but God knows those that go into their prayer closets to pray. Those that beseech the Lord for his will instead of their own create a recipe for healthy congregation. Um, I'm not assigning gender to God. Um, I'm speaking in a language that most people understand, but I'm not saying you don't understand. It's just that that's what has been historically understood. But I do not assign gender to deities, to um, Christ figures, to religious figures. I don't do that. Um, I was just reading that because that's how historically people have referenced God in male. But I don't do that personally because not everybody can relate to a deity, a Christ figure or a um, religious figure in the male gender pronouns. So I respect that. And I always say that all the time because I want people to understand that I'm not stepping on anybody's toes. I respect preferred gender pronouns for each and every human being on earth and even those who have passed away um, because I'm not respectful of a person. Four, a healthy church has members who serve with joy. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. Romans chapter 7 verse 6, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Ministries take work. In some cases, a ministry may take, may make a minute. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm being silly. Slow it down. 
Ministries take work. In some cases, a ministry may make take hours of volunteer time. Yet healthy church members serve with joy, knowing they're investing in the gospel being preached to all who benefit from that ministry. Helping in children's church can take solace that the word is being planting in those young minds and hearts. Those that give their lives to missions can know God will not allow that work to return void. Service is not a chore, but a privilege. Healthy people know that and embrace that reality. <coughs> Excuse me as I get some water to soothe my throat. Let me continue. Five, a healthy church has members who resolve interpersonal conflict in a healthy way. Now, this is old language from the ancient era, so no, I am not disrespecting anybody's gender and sexual diversity. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17 again. If a church member is mad at someone else in the congregation, they should go to the person directly about the matter not spread gossip to everyone else. Here's how scripture teaches us to resolve interpersonal conflict. One, healthy members go to the offender first to show care and consideration for the other. Two, if the two cannot reconcile, enlist the help of someone you know to go with you to confront the person. Um, Three, if that still doesn't work, then go to your pastor or another leader in the church. This is not the first step. Do your best to resolve it. Do your best to resolve it, but if you can't leave vengeance in God's hands, not yours. Oh, the very last step is if the church and the two people involved are unable to resolve the conflict, then the person that's causing all of the harm is expelled from membership, fellowship, and being able to have discipleship with that said church with that same church I mean to say um, that's a last second resort so there is a search, such thing called church discipline that they're talking about uh, six a healthy church is made up of people who appreciate the past but look forward to the future the world is a tumultuous place with so much sin and uncertainty it can feel overwhelming at times it is tempting to imagine a simpler time in the past a time when a ministry worked better and the world in general seemed like an easier place to live. But healthy churches don't relish in the past. Rather, they move forward with the confidence that God is in control of the world. They do whatever they can to advance the gospel instead of allowing the enemy to trick them into staying stuck in the past. 7. A healthy church is an accountable church. James chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Even when a church appears healthy, the enemy still seeks to kill and destroy anything that God... I'm sorry. Woo-hoo. Slow it down. Woosah. <laughs> I'm, just ha- I'm just being lighthearted with myself here. 
Even when a church appears healthy, the enemy still seeks to kill and destroy anything that gives God glory rather than God. John chapter 10 verse 10. Members know that if they are falling into sin, they must confess that to someone. I say that someone should be mature, trustworthy, wise, and have the equipment needed to properly and lovingly address the issues and problems. Healthy churches confess their sins not only to God, but to each other. This also includes pastors. Pastors need to find wise counsel outside of their congregation to make sure they are not falling into sin too. A, a healthy church gives cheerfully. The Acts church was so devoted to each other, they sold everything they had to give to those within their fellowship within their fellowship that had need. Acts chapter 2, verse 44 through 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. If churches gave this way today, everyone's needs would be met enough to where they could then pay it forward to others in the world with a need. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver, and the Acts Church was a great example of that. Number nine, a healthy church bears one another's burdens. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. One of the best characteristics of a healthy church is one that genuinely cares and connects with its members. I say genuinely cares and connects with its members, its visitors, its regular attendees, and its guests. Don't forget visitors now. You gotta, you gotta have the new people belong to. Not a cult, but a love-based spirituality. That's a healthy church. All right. They don't view each other as burdens, but rather go out of their way to bear one another's burdens. When people feel like others genuinely care about them, they are part of a healthy congregation. In a previous article, I wrote about depression in the church. Many readers responded that their number one concern with the church is that they were dismissive when it came to expressing themselves honestly about their mental illness and that most other church members didn't care. They said people offered platitudes such as just trust the Lord and your depression will go away. 10. And I want to, I'll finish 10 and go back to that point. 10. A healthy church welcomes strangers. See, there you go. According to Acts chapter 2 verse 42 through 47, as the church meets met the needs of those around them, the Lord added to the number daily. Jesus tells us his disciples in Matthew chapter 25 verse 35, for I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and came to visit me. When we welcome in the hurting, the downtrodden, and the poor without expecting anything in return, it is like we're doing it for the Lord. And any church that welcomes Jesus is a healthy one. Church can get messy. However, for churches that are willing to lay aside their own agendas and emulate the Acts Church example, the Lord will add to their number, making being a part of a church truly a joy. Michelle S. Lazarek is an award-winning author, speaker, pastor's wife, and mother. Winner of the Golden Scroll Children's Book of the Year, the Enduring Light Civil, 
Silver Medal and the Maxwell Award. She's a member of the Christian Authors Network and the Advanced Writers and Speakers Association. She is also an associate literary agent with Worldwise Media Services. For more information, please visit her website at michellelazarek.com. And so let me get back. Um, it is okay for Christians and people who go to church to receive therapy, counseling, psychiatry, support groups, life coaching, sex coaching, sex therapy, sex counseling, uh, marriage and family therapy, couples counseling, um, dating coaching job coaching, career coaching, all types of counseling, coaching, therapies in the world of psychology, psychologists, the entire psychological world. It's all good with Christ when you do all of the above. Amen. <laughs> I just had me a moment. <laughs> so... A people. I say a people. <laughs> um, and I mean that seriously because I know even the word amen can trigger people. Some people like Antonio, you really take it too far. I'm not. We live in a world that is gender and sexually di- gender and sexual diversity. I embrace gender and sexual diversity. So that's why I'm saying what I'm saying. Okay. One solitary life. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth. His coat when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen long centuries have come and gone, and today he is a centerpiece of the human race and leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever march, all the all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of this man upon this earth. Is powerfully the life of have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. This essay was adapted from a sermon by Dr. James Allen Francis in The Real Jesus and Other Sermons at 1926 by the Judson Press of Philadelphia, pages 123-124, titled Arise, Sir Knight. If you're interested, you can read the original version. Um, I'm going to read the original version. You already know who it is. I'm just saying, 
Let us now turn to the story. A child is born in an obscure village. He is brought up in another obscure village. He works in a carpenter shop until he is 30, then for three brief years as an itinerant preacher, proclaiming a message and living a life. He never writes a book. He never holds an office. He never raises an army. He never has a family of his own. He never owns a home. He never goes to college. He never travels 200 miles from the place where he was born. He gathers a little group of friends about him and teaches them his way of life. While still a young man, the tide of popular feeling turns against him. One denies him, another betrays him. He is turned over to his enemies. He goes through the mockery of a trial. He is nailed to a cross between two thieves, and when dead, is laid in a borrowed grave by the kindness of a friend. Those are the facts of his human life. He rises from the dead. Today, we look back across 1900 years and ask, what kind of trail has he left across the centuries? When we try to sum up his, when we try to sum up his influence, all the armies that ever marched, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned are absolutely pequeñong in their influence on mankind compared with that of this one solitary life. All right, let's get into it. Five groups of outcasts that Jesus loved. Jesus Film Project, Thursday, December seventh, two thousand seventeen. Every society in every era has individuals and groups who are forced to exist on the fringes. First century Jerusalem was no exception. Jewish culture edged certain groups into the periphery of social acceptance and prevailing religious beliefs often helped keep them there. When Jesus showed up, this whole system was turned on its head with statements like, so the last will be first and the first will be last, Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, New International Version. He reset the boundaries, restoring dignity and value to those on the margins. Here are five cast-off groups that Jesus loved. One, women. In first century Palestine, a woman's social sphere was only as large as her family. Jewish writings make it made it clear that it is the way of a woman to stay at home and it is the way of a man to go out to the marketplace. Bear a shit, Rabbi. I'm not cussing. Um, that's his act. That's the actual uh, name for that. Bear shit, Rabbi. I'm trying to make sure I say his name right. Yeah, I, I, I did my best. While literacy was an important element in teaching young men to study the Bible, it was a luxury for women. Because the Old Testament was explicit about teaching scripture to sons in quotations, Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 9, New American Standard Bible, women were excluded from instruction in the Torah. It wasn't normal for men to speak directly to women, John chapter 4, verse 27. Not only did the gospel show Jesus speaking to women, it depicts him doing so with an element of tenderness. He doesn't simply heal the woman with the bleeding disorder. He calls her daughter, in quotations, Luke chapter 8, verse 48. When he addresses the woman doubled over from spiritual oppression, he calls her a, in quotations, a daughter of Abraham, Luke chapter 13, verse 16, conferring on her a spiritual status equal to her male counterparts. Now, not only did Jesus allow his ministry to be largely supported by the financial offerings of women, Luke chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, but it was to women that he made his first post-resurrection appearance, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 11. In an era of gender segregation, you'd be hard-pressed to find an example where Jesus treated men and women differently. To the poor, the general attitude toward the poor seems strange in a world where the vast majority of people weren't particularly well off. By and large, the typical Jewish citizen and Roman occupied Israel didn't own much wealth. Perhaps that is why it was so important for people to consider themselves better than the impoverished. Impoverished. 
Jesus' teaching humanized the poor and demonstrated God's incredible concern for their well-being and in doing so, decried those who ignored or disenfranchised them. Luke chapter 4, verse 18, NIV, New International Version, NIV. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Looking in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, NIV. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 14, verse 13 through 14. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot re repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. 3. Unclean, the unclean. Much of the Old Testament was concerned with purity. One could become unclean through exposure to potentially contagious diseases or body fluids that could carry disease or from eating unclean foods. Once someone was unclean, they had to avoid sacred spaces and duties until they could be purified. To be unclean was to be socially ostracized. Lepers were one of the largest and most stigmatized unclean groups. It didn't help that leprosy was a horribly disfiguring disease. They were cursed with a terrible disease and the loneliness of exclusion. In Mark chapter 1, verse 40 through 45, Jesus is approached by a leper who wants to be healed of his affliction. The shock in his passage comes in Jesus' response to this man's request for healing. Jesus doesn't just heal the man, he touches him. Holy people avoided lepers entirely lest they become unclean themselves. Jesus' response towards this man, who probably hadn't known physical touch in a long time, displayed a humanizing kindness. We see the same kind of gentleness in the way Jesus responds to the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. This bleeding would have made her unclean, yet she takes it upon herself to touch him. Luke chapter 8 verse 48, his response isn't to berate her for making him clean, but to compliment her faith. That was the scriptural, scriptural reference. For oppressors, the Jews had no love for Rome and their desire for a, for a messianic Deliver was in large part to see the Roman oppressors defeated. Those Jews who decided to make the best of a bad situation by gathering taxes for Caesar were lumped in with the worst kinds of sinners. When a certain centurion sends some Jewish elders to request that Jesus come to heal his dying servant, he doesn't show contempt of any kind. While Jesus is on his way, the centurion dispatches friends to tell Jesus that he's not worthy to have the, the teacher in his home. But if Jesus would simply say the word, he, know his ser he knows his servant would be healed. Jesus looks around him and makes the most provocative observation. I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. 5. Racial enemies. The well-documented hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews dated back for centuries. That's why the authors of the Gospels and Acts were so enamored with documenting Jesus' discussions about this group and their exposure to the Gospel itself. When Jesus told a teacher of the law that loving his neighbor as himself was as important part was an important part of fulfilling the law, he asked Jesus who was his neighbor. Christ's response was a completely startling parable with a Samaritan as the hero. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. In another story that pits Jesus against both racial and gender discrimination, Jesus ends up alone with a Samaritan woman at the local watering hole. John chapter 4, verses 4 through 42. The discussion covers some of the misunderstandings that exist between Jewish and Samaritan worshipers. While displaying a sincere concern for this woman. In the end, the discussion results in the conversion of many in Samaria. Tearing down walls of division and talking about the reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles, Paul says, this is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, NIV, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, 
the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose is to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. The entire ministry of Jesus destroyed walls of hostility, bringing near those who were once estranged. This ministry of reconciliation is one that should continue through the work of the church. Scripture emphasizes that the enemy comes to steal and destroy while Jesus came to bring us life, John chapter 10, verse 10. It's not difficult to see how the enemy thwarts living joyfully, but we can also see the abundant life Jesus experienced through his love and compassion. In the Magdalena film, the scene of the woman with the blood issue beautifully depicts the sincerity Jesus showed towards the outcasts of society. With the power of his spirit, we can live in the same way. Share this post with those who need to experience Christ's love. Okay, these are very important now. Five characteristics of a healthy church. Everyone wants to be healthy, at least we think we do. Then we learn what being a healthy church requires. These common characteristics of a healthy church could be applied to almost any ministry or organization. One, they are led well. Pastors committed to church health equip people rather than trying to do it all. See Ephesians chapter 4. Healthy churches are always looking to empower leaders and broaden the base of leadership instead of consolidating leadership around an ego-driven few. Healthy churches have a shared dream and plan for the future, and they work hard to rally the congregation in the same direction. Two, they have systems that empower people to use their gifts. If people aren't given ways to use their gifts, their gifts atrophy. In healthy church, in unhealthy churches, the congregation is largely a group of bystanders. In an unhealthy church, people expect the pastors or staff to do all the ministry. Conversely, healthy churches have an intentional system and process of identifying, developing, and launching more and better leaders. If you want to be a healthy church, create systems that unleash the God-given potential in the people you have. You don't have to be a big church to have a big impact. All you need is to be effective at empowering people to use their gifts for the royalty of heaven. They said kingdom to be gender is actually inclusive, the royalty of heaven. Three, they are vision-centered. A healthy church communicates and lives out vision. Unhealthy churches might talk about vision, but healthy churches act on vision. Unhealthy churches primarily function out of habit. They do what is comfortable and work hard to maintain the status quo at all costs. Vision describes where your church is going. Healthy churches use this exciting, God-giving picture of the future in their decision-making processes. They choose what they will do, won't do, and plan to do based on that vision. Four, the preaching is practical. If your church's preaching doesn't connect to people's lives, it will undoubtedly have little impact. This doesn't mean that you have to do topical series of becoming self-help church. To be certain, you should only always preach the Bible. However, be sure that you make preaching practical so that people live differently. Put as much effort and thought into the application portion of your sermon as you do into a word study of the original text. After all, the purpose of the Bible is to teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16-17. Not turn all of us into scholars of an ancient language. 5. The preaching is gospel-centered. Every Sunday is someone's first Sunday. There is a high degree of certainty that not every person in the pews at your church is saved. Beyond that, it's a near certainty that many in the pews are not living like gospel-believing people. While the gospel might seem like milk, it isn't. It is not. 
the good news of Jesus Christ that he paid the penalty for our sin through, the, through his death on the cross, that he conquered sin and death when he rose, and that both forgiveness and power granted to us by grace are the reminders that all of us need every week. This isn't to say that your church must do an altar call every Sunday. There's no prescription for the right or best way to deliver a gospel-centric message each week. The recommendation is simply to make sure that while practical teaching is good, point four, gospel-centered preaching is necessary. Which of these areas do you need to work on to create a healthy church and impact this community? Pick one and take action. Brad Bridges is a pastor and former consultant with the Milefers Group at Brad Bridges. Okay, let me see how much time I got. Keep on, man. All right. Jesus, the original networker. Nine business lessons from the Bible. Doe, Fireball, September 1st, 2016, 12.50 p.m. Based on the life and career of Jesus of Nazareth as portrayed in the Bible, we could easily consider Jesus Christ to be the perfect role model for network marketers. If you look at anything and everything we do in our business, you'll find a perfect blueprint for it in the Holy Scriptures. Below are nine lessons I learned from reading the Bible that worked wonderfully in my business. One, prospects are everywhere. Christ says the harvest is ready. Open your eyes. It's out there everywhere you look, but the workers are few. What that means to us is open your eyes. Prospects are everywhere. All you need to do is show up, reach out, and follow up. Two, don't convince. Be brief. Christ was very brief. He said, follow me. We spend so much time trying to convince people, but he said, those who have ears will listen. This business is not for everybody. The right people are going to show up. If this is right for you, great. If not, you won't be able to hear it. Three, use pictures, tell stories. Jesus' presentations were always in parables. We've all taught this. The best way to teach people is with word pictures tell stories the most powerful way to recruit is to paint a powerful picture and relate it to your listeners future that's what he did four close without pleading christ was a master at closing he never begged people look either you are for or against me he said you're in or you're out what's it gonna be he never said please 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 it was do what you feel led to do five practice duplication jesus said i do only what i see my father do that's total duplication and talk about the ultimate sponsor. In fact, Christ didn't just practice duplication. He, that's du- total duplication. And talk, <laughs> okay, they repeat themselves again. It's okay, that's total duplication. Talk about the ultimate sponsor. In fact, Christ didn't just practice du- duplication. He practiced multiplication. That's what they meant to say. He practiced multiplication. Six, use social proof. Christ sent his disciples out two by two. If I tell you something, it may be suspect because you heard it just from me. But if I have my partner on the line with me and we both tell you it has more credibility, it has more credibility because it's the word of two people. Seven, keep moving. Next. One of our favorite words in network marketing is next. That's what Christ modeled. If a town is not in accord with your message, shake off the dust and keep moving. Next. Eight, talk to lots of people. Christ was a social creature. He knew there was power in numbers and how to use that power. He spent his time out in the crowd. His congregations were very eclectic. He was always drawing crowds and connecting with people. He modeled the understanding that you never know who your next superstar is going to be. Lastly, nine, don't prejudge. Christ never prejudged anyone. Who'd have thought that one of his top leaders would be someone who denied him three times? 
or a tax collector, one who was known for his less than ethical ways, or two uneducated fishermen, and they became great recruiters. My wife, Jody, and I love Jesus, and our life purpose is strongly rooted in our Christian faith. In building our business and ministry, we always ask ourselves, what would Christ do and how would Jesus respond? This has brought tremendous blessings and continuous miracles into your lives. Meanwhile, we respect other wisdom traditions and are not here to be fanatics. Our message is simply this. We're, we're modeling Christ in our in our in an every we're modeling Christ in a way everybody can relate to and grow from whether they're a Christian or not. Heed these nine lessons from the Bible and watch your business flourish. Adapted from an interview with Doug Furball Fireball titled Jesus the Original Network Jesus the Original Networker in the March 2003 issue of Networking Times. Doug Fireball is a veteran networker and coach to the networking profession. Doug has over 20 years of experience in direct sales and network marketing. He has been blessed with winning numerous awards and helping people maximize their human success capital. Damn much. Ooh, I got lots of time. All right, let me just read this drum major thing. This is the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute, the drum major instinct. Um, this morning, I would like to use as a subject from which to preach the drum major instinct, a drum major instinct, in quotations. And our text for the morning is taken from a very familiar passage in the 10th chapter as recorded by St. Mark. Beginning with the 35th verse of that chapter, we read these words. And John, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest should this do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said, un- but Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of and with the baptism that I am baptized with. All shall ye be baptized, but the sin on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And, and then Jesus goes on towards the end of that passage to say, But so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your servant, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. The setting is clear. James and John are making a specific request of the master. They had dreamed as much as the Hebrews dreamed of a coming king of Israel who would set Jerusalem free and establish his kingdom on Mount Zion and in righteousness rule the world. And they thought of Jesus as this kind of king. And they were thinking of that day when Jesus would reign supreme as this new king of Israel. And they were saying, now when you establish your kingdom, let one of us sit on the right hand and the other on the left hand of your throne. Now, very quickly, we would automatically condemn James and John and we would say they were selfish. Why would they make such a selfish request? But before we condemn them too quickly, let us look calmly and honestly at ourselves and we will discover that we too have those same basic desires for recognition for importance. That same desire for attention, that same desire to be first. Of course, the other disciples got mad with James and John, and you can understand why. But we must understand that we have some of the same James and John qualities. And there is deep down within us deep down within all of us an instinct. It's a kind of drum major instinct, a desire to be out front, a desire to lead the parade, a desire to be first, and and it is something that runs the whole gamut of life. And so before we condemn them, let us see that we all have the drum major instinct. 
We all want to be important, to surpass others, to achieve distinction, to lead the parade. Alfred Adler, the great psychoanalyst, contends that this is the dominant impulse. Sigmund Freud used to contend that sex was the dominant impulse, and Adler came with a new argument, saying that this quest for recognition, this desire for attention, this desire for distinction, is the basic impulse, the basic drive of human life, this drum major instinct. And you know we begin to, and, and you know we begin early to ask life to put us first. Our first as a cry was a bid for attention, and all through childhood, the the, the drum major impulse or instinct is a major obsession. Children ask life to grant them first place. They are a little bundle of ego, and they have innately the drum major impulse or the drum major instinct. Now in adult life, we still have it, and we really never get by it. We like to do something good, and you know we like to be praised for it. Now, if you don't believe that, you just go on living life, and you'll discover very soon that you like to be praised. Everybody likes it, as a matter of fact. And somehow this warm glow we feel when we praised, and somehow this warm glow we feel when we are praised and when our name is in print is something of the vitamin A to our ego. Nobody is unhappy when they are praised, even if they know they don't deserve it, and even if they don't believe it. The only unhappy people about praise is when that praise is going too much towards somebody else. That's right. But everybody likes to be praised because of this real drum major instinct. Now, the presence of the drum major instinct is why so many people are, quote unquote, joiners. You know, there are some people who just join everything. And it's really a quest for attention and recognition and importance. And they get names that give them that impression. So you get your groups and they become the grand patron and the little fellow who is henpecked at home needs a chance to be the quote unquote most worthy of the most worthy of something. It is a drum major impulse and longing that runs the gamut of human life. And so we see it everywhere. This quest for recognition and we join things, overjoin really, that we think that we will find the recognition in. Oh, by the way, the congregation is adding their ad-libbing, so that's why I said that's right. And other things you can tell, that's his congregation speaking. Now, the presence of this instinct explains why we are so often taken by advertisers. You know, those gentlemen of massive verbal persuasion, and they have a way of saying things to you that kind of gets you into buying. In order to be a man of distinction, you must drink this whiskey. In order to make your neighbors envious, you must drive this type of car. Make it plain! In order to be lovely to love, in order to be lovely to love, you must wear this kind of lipstick or this kind of perfume. And you know, before you know it, you're just buying that stuff. Yes, that's the way the advertisers do it. I got a letter the other day, and there was a new magazine coming out, and it opened up. Dear Dr. King, as you know, you are on many mailing lists, and you are categorized as highly intelligent, progressive, a lover of the arts and the sciences. And though you will want to read what I have to say, of course I did. And after you said all that and explained me so exactly of course i wanted to read it they laughed her <laughs> but very seriously it goes through life the drum major instinct is real yes and you know what else it causes to happen it often causes us to live above our means make it plain it's nothing but the drum major instinct do you ever see people buy cars that they can't even begin to buy in terms of their income amen laughter you've seen people riding around in cadillacs and chryslers who don't earn enough to have a good t model for it make it plain but it feeds a repressed ego you know economists tell us that your automobile should not cost more than half of your annual income. So if you make an income of $5,000, your car shouldn't cost more than about $2,500. That's just good economics. 
And if it's a family of two and both members of the family make $10,000, they'll have to make out with one car. That would be good economics, although it's often inconvenient. But so often, haven't you seen people making $5,000 a year and driving a car that costs $6,000? And they wonder why their ends never meet. Laughter? That's a fact. Now, the economists also say that your house shouldn't cost. If you're buying a house, it shouldn't cost more than twice your income. That's based on the economy, how you would make ends meet. So if you have an income of $5,000, it's kind of difficult in this society. But say it's a family with an income of $10,000, the house shouldn't cost much more than $20,000. Well, I've seen folk making $10,000, living in a forty dollars and $50,000 house, and you know they just barely make it. They get a check every month somewhere, and they owe all of that out before it, be, before it comes in, never have anything to put away for rainy days. But now the problem is, it is the drum major instinct. And you know, you see people over and over again with the drum major instinct taking them over. And they just live their lives trying to outdo the Joneses. Amen. They got to get this coat because this particular coat is a little better and a little better looking than Mary's coat. And I got to drive this car because it's something about this car that makes my car a little better than my neighbor's car. Amen. I know a man who used to live in a $35,000 house and other people started building $35 houses. So he built a $75,000 house and then somebody else built a $75,000 house and he built a $100,000 house. And I don't know where he's going to end up if he's going to live his life trying to keep up with the Joneses. There comes a time that the drum major instinct can become destructive. Make it plain. And that's where I want to move now. I want to move to the point of saying that if this instinct is not harnessed, it becomes a very dangerous, pernicious instinct. For instance, if it isn't harnessed, it causes one's personality to become distorted. I guess that's the most damaging aspect of it, what it does to the personality. If it isn't harnessed, you will end up day in and day out trying to deal with your ego problem by boasting. Have you ever heard people that you know, and I'm sure you've met them, that really become sickening because they just sit up all the time talking about themselves. Amen. And they just boast and boast and boast. And that's the person who has not harnessed the drum major instinct. And then it does other things to the personality. It causes you to lie about who you know sometimes. Amen. Make it plain. There, there are some people who are influenced peddlers. And in their attempt to deal with the drum major instinct, they have to try to identify with the so-called big name people. Yeah, make it plain. And if you're not careful, they will make you think they know somebody that they don't really know. Amen. They know them well. They sip tea with them and this and that. That happens to people. And the other thing is that it causes one to engage ultimately in activities that are merely used, that are merely used to get attention. Criminologists tell us that some people are driven to crime because of this drum major instinct. They don't feel that they're getting enough attention through the normal channels of social behavior, and so they turn to antisocial behavior in order to get attention, in order to feel important. Yeah, and so they got they get that gun, and before they know it, they robbed a bank in a quest for recognition and in a quest for importance. And then the final great tragedy of the distorted personality is the fact that when one fails to harness this instinct, glory to God, he ends up trying to push others down in order to push himself up. Amen. And whenever you do that, you engage in some of the most vicious activities. You will spread evil, vicious, lying gospel on people because you're trying to pull them down in order to push yourself up and make it plain. And the great issue of life is to harness the drum major instinct. Now, the other problem is when you don't harness the drum major instinct, this uncontrolled aspect of it, 
is that it leads to snobbish exclusivism. It leads to snobbish exclusivism. Make it plain. You know, this is the danger of social clubs and fraternities. I'm in a fraternity. I'm a two or three for sororities and all of these. I'm not talking against them. I'm saying it's the danger. The danger is that they can become forces of classism and exclusivism where somehow you get a degree of satisfaction because you're in something exclusive. And that's fulfilling something, you know, that I'm in this fraternity and it's the best fraternity in the world and everybody can't get in this fraternity. So it ends up, you know, a very exclusive kind of thing. And you know that can happen with the church. I know churches get in that bind sometimes. Amen. Make it plain. I've been to churches, you know, and they say we have so many doctors and so many school teachers and so many lawyers and so many businessmen in our church. And that's fine because doctors need to go to church and lawyers and businessmen, teachers, they ought to be in church. But they say that even the preachers sometimes will go all through that. They say that as if the other people don't count. Amen. And the church is the one place where a doctor ought to forget that he's a doctor. The church is the one place where a PhD ought to forget that he's a PhD. Yes, the church is the one place that the school teacher ought to forget the degree she has behind her name. The church is the one place where the lawyer ought to forget that he's a lawyer. And any church that violates the whosoever will let him come doctrine is a dead, cold church. Yes, and nothing but a little social club with a thin veneer of religiosity. When the, tr- when the church is true to its nature, woo, it says... Whosoever will let him come, yes, and it does not suppose to satisfy the perverted uses of the drum major instinct. It's the one place where everybody should be the same, standing before a common master and savior. Yes, sir. And a recognition grows out of this, that all men are brothers because they are children, yes, of a common father. The drum major instinct can lead to exclusivism in one's thinking and can lead one to feel that because he has some training, he's a little bit better than the person who doesn't have it or because he has some economic security. Then he's a little better than that person who doesn't have it and that's the uncontrolled, perverted use of the drug major instinct. Now, the other thing is that at least the tragic, and we've seen it happen so often, tragic race prejudice. Men who have written about this problem, Lillian Smith used to say it beautifully in some of her books, and she would say it to the point of getting men and women to see the source of the problem. Do you know that a lot of the race problem grows out of the drum major instinct, a need that some people have to feel superior, a need that some people have to feel they are first, and to feel that their white skin ordained them to be first? Make it plain today, because I'm against it, so help me God. And they have said over and over again in ways that we see with our own eyes. In fact, not too long ago, a man down in Mississippi said that God was a charter member of the White Citizens Council. And so God being the charter member means that everybody who's in that has a kind of divinity, a kind of superiority. And think of what has happened in history as a result of this perverted use of the drum major instinct. It has led to the most tragic prejudice, the most tragic expressions of man's inhumanity to man. The other day I was saying, I will always try to do a little converting while I'm in jail. And when we were in jail in Birmingham the other day, the white wardens and all enjoyed coming around the cell to talk about the race problem. And they were showing us where we were so wrong. And they were showing us where we were so wrong demonstrating. And they were showing us where segregation was so right. And they were showing us where intermarriage was so wrong. So I would get to preaching. We'd get to talking calmly because they wanted to talk about it. And then we got down one day to the point that was the second or third day to talk about where they lived and how much they were earning. And when those brothers told me what they were earning, I said, now, you know what? You ought to be marching with us. Laughter. You're just as poor as Negroes. 
And I said, you are put in the position of supporting your oppressor because through prejudice and blindness, you fail to see that the same forces that oppress Negroes in American society oppresses poor white people. Yes. And all of you are living on is the satisfaction of your skin being white and the drum major instinct of thinking that you are somebody big because you are white. Yeah, and you're so poor, you can't send your children to school. You ought to be out here marching with every one of us every time we have a march. Now, that's a fact. That's the poor white has been put into this position. Where through blindness and prejudice, make it plain, he is forced to support his oppressors. And the only thing he has going for him is the false feeling that he's superior because his skin is white and can't hardly eat and make his ends meet week in and week out. Amen. And... Hold on for a minute. Let me find my place. And not only does this thing go into the racial struggle, and not only does this thing go into the racial struggle, it goes into the struggle between nations. And I would submit to you this morning that what is wrong in the world today is that the nations of the world are engaged in a bitter, colossal context for supremacy. And if something doesn't happen to stop this trend, I'm sorely afraid that we won't be here to talk about Jesus Christ and about God, and about brotherhood too many more years. Yeah. If somebody doesn't bring it into the suicidal thrust that we see in the world today, none of us are going to be around because somebody's going to make the mistake through our senseless blunderings of dropping a nuclear bomb somewhere. And then another one is going to drop and don't let anybody fool you. This can happen within a major, uh, this can happen within a matter of seconds. Amen. They have 20 Metagon bombs in Russia right now that can destroy a city as big as New York in three seconds, with everybody wiped away in every building. And we can do the same thing to Russia and China. Well, this is why we are drifting. And we are drifting there because nations are caught up with the drum major instinct. I must be first. I must be supreme. Our nation must rule the world. Preach it. And I am sad to say that the nation in which we live is the supreme culprit. I'm going to continue to say it to America because I love this country too much to see the drift that it, ha- that it has taken. God didn't call... America to do what she's doing in the world now. Preach it, preach it. God didn't call America to engage in a senseless, unjust war as the war in Vietnam, and we are criminals in that war. We've committed more war crimes almost than any nation in the world, and I'm going to continue to say it, and we won't stop it because of our pride and our arrogance as a nation. But God has a way of even putting nations in their place. Amen. The God that I worship has a way of saying, don't play with me. Yes, he has a way of saying, as the God of the Old Testament used to say to the Hebrews, don't play with me, Israel. Don't play with me, Babylon. Yes, be still and know that I'm God, and if you don't stop your reckless course, I'll rise up and break the backbone of your power. Yes, and that can happen to America. Yes, every now and then I go back and read Gibbons' Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And when I come and look at America, I say to myself that parallels are frightening. And we have perverted the drum major instinct. But let me rush on to my conclusion because I want you to see what Jesus was really saying. What was the answer that Jesus gave these men? It's very interesting. One would have thought that Jesus would have condemned them. One would have thought that Jesus would... One would have thought that Jesus Jesus would have said, you are out of your place. You are selfish. Why would you raise such a question? But that isn't what Jesus did. 
he did something altogether different. He said in substance, oh, I see you want to be first. You want to be great. You want to be important. You want to be significant. Well, you ought to be. If you're going to be my disciple, you must be. But he reordered priorities and he said, yes, don't give up this instinct. It's a good instinct if you use it right. Yes, it's a good instinct if you don't distort it and pervert it. Don't give it up. Keep feeling the need for being important. Keep feeling the need for being first. But I want you to be first in love. Amen. I want you to be first in moral excellence. I want you to be first in generosity. That is what I want you to do. And he transformed the situation by giving a new definition of greatness. You know how he said, he said, now, brethren, I can't give you greatness. And really, I can't make you first. This is what Jesus said to James and John. You must earn it. True greatness comes not by favoritism, but by fitness. And the right hand and the left are not mine to give. They belong to those who are prepared. Amen. And so Jesus gave us a new norm of greatness. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize... That he who is um, who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Amen. That's a new definition of greatness. And this morning, the thing that I like about it, by giving that definition of greatness, it means that everybody can be great. Everybody, because everybody can serve. Amen. You don't have to have a college degree to serve, all right? You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics to serve. Amen. You only need a heart full of grace. Yes, sir. Amen. A soul generated by love. Yes. And you can be that servant. I'm not preaching, I'm not proselytizing, I'm not converting, I'm not persuading, I'm not evangelizing, I'm just being honest about what it means for a church to be a healthy church.